You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 42 and 43. If you're new here, my name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to Citizens Church. We're, we're thrilled and honored uh, to host you this morning. Glad that you chose to worship with us. If you're uh, watching online right now, whether you've been watching for some time uh, or this is your first time, welcome. Um, we have spent the, the past few weeks in the Psalms, and the question that really um, I've tried to lay over these weeks uh, has been this, how do I talk to God about the things that are hard to talk to God about? Uh, it, to put it another way, the question is how do I pray, and how do I pray about the things that, that feel uh, really difficult to pray about? Uh, this will be our last week in the Psalms, at least for now. I, I imagine um, that we'll come back to this place often, maybe even later uh, this fall, just because I believe so deeply as I've tried to capture the last few weeks that, that it's an essential part of the Christian life to know not just how to talk to God, but to how to talk to God about things that are hard to talk to God about. It's an essential part of the Christian life to learn to pray to God in an honest way. And, and we're living in a, in a moment, both culturally and in a religious culture, uh, that will give us a lot of reasons to not do this. And so if it's going to become part of our lives, then it's something that we'll need to regularly talk about. Uh, without rehashing everything, what I've tried to capture the last few weeks is, is, is this, that this kind of prayer, two things, you need it and you can do it. You need it and you can do it. You need it in that life with Jesus is going to move at the pace of prayer, not at the, at the pace of action for God, but at the pace of conversation with God. And so make time for it. Learn, learn how to do it. For me personally, I'm, I'm really new at this. Um, as, as long as I've been a Christian and as long as I've been in ministry, uh, I'm really new to this uh, attempt to have these kinds of honest conversations with God. And, and really what I don't want is I don't want to stand before Jesus some, someday and look at him and say, we've got a lot of catching up to do. You know, I want to learn to talk to him now the way that I'll talk to him then. I want to be better. I hope someday to be better at, at talking uh, to him than I am talking about him. That's not true now, but, but I feel like I'm on my way. And so you and I, we need this. We need to, if we go back to last week, we need to get under that thin layer uh, of our lives, that, that foam layer, and talk to God about deep things. We need it, and you can do this. You can do it. Um, the book of Psalms has for centuries been a prayer guide for the people of God. It's as if God wants to sit at a table with you and have a conversation with you, and if you say, I don't know how to get to the table, the book of Psalms is going to grab you by the hand, and it'll lead you there, and it'll pull out your chair, and then it'll give you words to speak to God. You can do this. After the first week in Psalm 73, uh, one of my friends who's a member here came up to me and said, um, hey, I, I tried it. And I said, tried what? Uh, I got nervous for a minute, and he said, well, I tried, um, I tried praying. I, the thing you said, I, I read Psalm 73, and I, and I prayed uh, to God. And I said, you didn't try it. You did it. And he said, well, you know, it was kind of awkward, and um, I got a little confused. And, and it's like, of course it was. You know, it's new, and it's unfamiliar, and it takes time. But look, you didn't try it. You did it. You sought God. And it, it was a win. And here's why. Here's how I know that. Because on the other side of that prayer is not a distant God scrutinizing your performance. On the other side of that prayer is a Father in heaven who's enjoying your presence, enjoying conversation with you, inviting you into that. You did it. You can do this. We've answered two questions so far. How do I talk to God about my doubt? Last week we answered, how do I talk to God about my sin? 
And this morning we'll answer a, a different question. Psalm 42 and 43, I'm going to invite us to make this prayer our own. Uh, 42 and 43 together were once an original psalm. It was one long prayer. At least most scholars believe it was one long prayer that was divided into two. So we're taking it as one long prayer together. And, and as it was read for us so beautifully by Ina, did you get a feel for the, the climate of the psalm? Is it a happy psalm or is it a sad psalm? My tears are my food. Why are you cast down? God, you have forgotten me. Why do I go on mourning? I think one of the greatest movies ever in the history of the world is the movie The Princess Bride. If, thank you. Uh, if you disagree with that, that's okay. We can still be friends. Uh, we will just never be close friends if you disagree with that. Um, there's this scene where the princess, Buttercup, uh, I'm just now realizing that I would have to say the word Buttercup on stage in front of all of you people. Um, there's a scene where the princess and Wesley, they're at the, the top of this mountain and they're arguing. He's dressed as the Dread Pirate Roberts and... Um, she doesn't know it's him, and he's being super sarcastic, and she says, you mock my pain. And he responds and says, anybody? Thank you. Wow, way to go. Okay. This is going to be a good morning. Okay. Life is pain, highness. And anyone who says differently is selling something. It's a real cynical moment of the movie. Um, most of the Psalms, they don't have uh, titles to them. If you read it, the titles that you read in your Bible, they were given later by someone who put it together. Um, but if this Psalm was given a title by the author, a good title for it would be, Life is Pain. It, it's got this despairing tone to it, right? My soul is in turmoil. The waves have gone over me. The guy writing the psalm is a musician, and if he had put music to the psalm, which he most likely did, it would have been a lot of down chords, a lot of sad chords. Two phrases he repeats in the psalm, 42 and 43, both of them are, are, are metaphors, they're idioms, or they're, they're uh, analogies, if you will. And there's two questions he asks himself. He says, why are you cast down, and why do I go on mourning? That word cast down literally means collapse. So when he says, why is my soul cast down, it, it, another way to understand it is he's asking, why has my soul collapsed? The word mourning is, is a grief word, it's sadness, but literally it means that the light is dimming, the light is fading. So if you take those two together, he's saying, my soul has collapsed and the light of life is fading around me. That's a really tough place to be. What's happening? Like, like, what has caused this kind of state in him? He tells us in a verse that's really, really familiar. It begins, he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul thirsts for you. For a long time, and by for a long time, I mean up until about five days ago, I thought that this verse, this image of a deer longing for water, I don't know why, but I thought that it was about someone who had this deep, satisfying relationship with God, and they just couldn't get enough, and so they just kept drinking in all of God's goodness. That's not the image. That's not what makes sense of the metaphor, and that's not what makes sense of the verses that follow. The image is not a satisfied animal, but a desperate one. It, it calls us to think of an animal that's in the very middle of drought, a deer that's in the middle of drought, and what happens in drought is that they go to the place where water should be, and there is none, and that's the metaphor. This animal, he goes to the place where they're used to finding water, and it's not there. So it's panting at the edge of dried up land, desperate for the streams to flow again. 
And the psalmist says, God, that's my relationship with you right now. I came to where I thought you were, where I was used to finding you, and you weren't there. I'm searching for you, and I can't find you. And that's the cause of all of his sadness. All of the turmoil, the tears, the collapsed soul, the fading light, it's because something's wrong with him and God. Namely, God feels far from him. And it's, as a result, his soul collapses. The light is dim. Life, life is pain for him. Tim Keller describes it like this. He has lost the relational experience of God's presence. He has no more taste, no more feel, no more sight, no more sound of God in his soul. Hang on to this. Thoughts about God that used to comfort, sweeten, soften, and strengthen him don't resonate. They're not striking. They don't do it anymore. The condition he's describing is he has lost the reality of God. Not belief in God. He's lost the reality of God. He no longer feels like he has a hold on God. He no longer has a sense there's a God who's there. He's experienced spiritual dryness, spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual deadness. Nothing resonates. Psalm 42 and 43 answers this question. How do I talk to God when he seems far from me? How do I talk to God when he seems far from me? How do I talk to God when he feels absent from my life, when, when it feels like I'm searching for him and can't find him? Do you know this experience? Are, are you living it right now? Lost the sense of God's presence. There's no more feel, no more sight. Thoughts about God that used to comfort, sweeten, soften, and strengthen. They just don't do it anymore. You maybe reach for those things, and it just doesn't land like it used to. See, see something really important. I, I think this is important to make or it might trip us up. What happened in this guy's life? Like, how did he get to this place? What were the circumstances that led up to the writing of this psalm? We don't know. We're not told. Uh, there, there are a handful of guesses. This isn't David who's writing, by the way. It's a guy who's part of a group of psalmists called the Sons of Korah, and that was a group of worship leaders associated with temple worship. And so it's possible that he's worshiping in the temple. He's taken by an enemy army. He's in exile, and he writes this psalm from exile. That seems to fit with, with some of the language, but the reality is we just don't know. We don't know what's, what, what happened. We just know what's wrong. We know the details. We don't know the cause. We don't know the details. We just know that it feels, he feels like the deer that went to the stream where there used to be water and it's dry and he stares at the ground and he asks, where are you, God? And I, I think that is helpful for some of us. I think it's to our advantage that we don't know the details because I think that for some of us, maybe we resonate with some of the psalm. We're like, okay, that lands and, and, and I feel that. But if the details were there, we would line the details of our life up with the details of his life. And if they didn't match, we would believe this prayer is not for me. Um, it, with the psalm, what the psalm describes is a form of suffering. And one of the ways that we avoid dealing with our suffering is by believing it doesn't count when it's held up against someone else's suffering. Maybe it's not as bad, or maybe it's different. So instead of approaching God based on where we are with honesty, we discount it by saying, well, we shouldn't be here because my life is not like their life, or I don't deserve to be here. But instead, see this, instead of getting the answer to the question, how did this happen, we get the answer to a very different question. We get the answer to the question, who is this for? Who is it written for? Who's this prayer preserved for? Who is it trying to grab by the hand and lead to the table? And here's the answer, the downcast. The one for whom it feels like the light is fading and their soul has collapsed and they're mourning. The one for whom it seems God is far from me and absent in ways that he used to be present. And, and I need us to know this. You can get there for any number of reasons. Any number of reasons. As a pastor, here's what I've seen, to just name a few. I've seen people describe their relationship with God like this. 
It just feels like things have dried up with God. And, and the reason is, is because there's, there's loss in their life. Loss of a relationship or loss of a loved one. And from a place of deep grief and deep sadness, they just feel like the ground has dried up underneath them. Where are you, God? I've seen others get here because of some form of depression in their life, something mentally happening with them, maybe even physically happening, and there's suffering going on, and there's, it, there's a spiritual component connected to that. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in London for 30 years. Before he went into ministry, he was a physician, had a thriving practice as a doctor. And so drawing from his training as a doctor and then his training in ministry, he would use Psalm 42 and 43 to minister to the people in his church with depression. He wrote an entire book about it. Not that that's all that was needed. It's not just take this Bible verse and it'll all go away. It's, it's a very complex struggle. I understand that. There are no simple solutions. But the point is, is that we are body and soul. That's how God made us, mind and soul. You even hear the psalmist say this, my tears are my food all day and all night, which means this, he can't eat and he can't sleep. There's something going on that's affecting his whole person, his soul and his stomach, his soul and his sleep. We are not... We are not comprised as people of unconnected compartments. God did not make us like that. We are whole people, body and soul, mind and soul. And so for some, something happening mentally, chemically, something happening physically is also happening spiritually and maybe even, even began spiritually, started with God. And so it would fit to describe what's going on with me is soul collapse. The light is fading. It just feels like everything with God dried up. I, I also have known it personally, where I've seen it and then known it personally, is in seasons of high stress or after seasons of high stress, like maybe where there's a lot of change or maybe where there's a lot of tragedy or maybe where there's a lot of controversy, like a lot of unknown. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe where bad news surrounds us or controversial things divide us, when problems don't have easy solutions and questions don't have easy answers. Those seasons have a weight to them, my friends. I'm not sure if you picked up on this. I'm talking about the season that we're all living in right now and, and have been for some time. And in some ways, what it can do is it can require of all of us more than what we have, and, and it can confuse us that we're responsible for more than what we actually are, and that comes at a cost. Here's how I've seen it in my life, what I've noticed in these last two years at times. Um, I'm, not the, I'm not the guy, first of all, who sits down to pray and the heavens just open up. And I'm just like levitating in the presence of God. That didn't happen. And like God in the voice of Morgan Freeman speaks audibly to me, right? <laughs> that would be amazing, but that doesn't happen. But, but I am the guy um, who, for whom love for the Lord, confidence in him is, is stirred in me often, often. It's not easy. It's not automatic, automatic, but it's there. And yet, there's been a thing that's happened over these last few years that's new for me where, as Keller described it, the thoughts that used to comfort, sweeten, soften, and strengthen, just, they don't. They don't land. They don't resonate. And, and maybe I wouldn't call it like full-blown soul collapse, but there is a felt distance from God, or there has been a felt distance from God, the, the presence of a dryness that I want nothing to do with. It's, it's frightening. Do you know that? You feel that? Or maybe, look, maybe you'd say, I have no idea how I got here. I have no idea what led up to it. You just know that this psalm describes where you are, point for point. It feels like drought with God. If that's true, Psalm 42 and 43, it wants to grab you by the hand this morning and lead you into conversation with God. How do I talk to God when he seems far from me? Four things. 
that we see the psalmist do in this prayer. He talks to God. He remembers with God. He talks to himself, and he hopes in God. How do I talk to God when he seems far from me? Talk to God. Remember with God. Talk to himself. He hopes in God. The first thing he does is he talks to God, number one. So let me state it so that I want you to know I understand how redundant it is, okay? How do I talk to God when he's far from me? Step one, and you talk to God. I get it. But bear with me and think about this. Uh, He believes God is absent, and so he talks to him. God is not listening, so he tells God that he doesn't think he's listening and expects him to hear that. It's almost a prayer about not being able to pray, and and I find something just so compelling about that. So here's what's not happening. He's not where he is because of doubt. That's Psalm 73. He's not where he is because of sin. That's Psalm 51. Uh, He's also not where he is because he's been passive in his relationship with God. I think that's important to say. Some of us maybe experience that kind of absence of God. Maybe there's some in the room, the conversation needs to be a little bit different because we would say, I don't feel close to God right now, but it's because I've neglected the things that stir the soul. Like, I don't know anyone who spends seasons neglecting prayer and neglecting worship and neglecting Bible and neglecting gathering with the people of God, and they come out of that on, on some sort of spiritual high. That doesn't happen, okay? So, so for some of us, it's not that things have dried up, it's that we have drifted away, and maybe a different conversation is needed. I think of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says to admonish the idol. And so some of us maybe need that gentle admonishment to return to the things, to align how you spend your time with what you say is most important. Maybe that person is in the room, but that's not this guy. That's not uh, what's led up to the writing of the psalm. It's not that he's been perfect, it's, but he's been, he's been trying pursuing God, looking for God, and here's what happens. That has felt so empty. That has felt so fruitless. He gets to this breaking point. He gets to this soul collapse moment, and what does he do? He writes God a prayer about it. He talks to God. He keeps trying. He writes a prayer about not being able to pray, and it's just such honest faith. You know what he could have done? You know what it would have been easy to do? To just go to another stream, to 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 go and find other gods to worship. Like something to be really careful of, my friends, is if you think, if you, if you think feel, things feel dry in your relationship with God, you are more susceptible to temptation. You are, you are more prone to find some way to cope, to go and, and look to something else, to get from something else what you're not getting from God because it's easier. It's so much easier. And maybe that's in places and things that are really egregious, like clearly sinful, or maybe it's things that are more culturally acceptable, like it's much easier to scroll on your phone in the dull moments of the day than to try to pray to God when he feels distant or when things feel really dry. Like there's at least some sort of dopamine hit when you scroll, right? Be careful. Like be careful of using anything in life to escape from life. Be careful using anything in life that is an easy off-ramp from the reality of life, especially if life with God seems dry. It's easier in that to match God's absence with absence of your own. That's what we'll be prone to do, Um, to, to match his absence from you with your absence from him. And I think there's something else going on there. I think for some of us, that's not just easier, but it's the only thing we know to do because we expect that if we're doing Christianity the right way, we will never end up in the dry place. So it's confusing to be there. You know, as a preacher in this part of the world, 
uh, one of my responsibilities that, that I take very seriously, that I think of all the time, is the responsibility not just to teach us from God's word so that we learn, but also to teach the counsel of God's word so that we unlearn things that we learned in our religious environment that are not true. There's an unlearning that if you grew up in this area, no matter who you are, there's this unlearning that some of us need to do. One of the things we need to unlearn is this idea that Christianity only offers a mountaintop experience. Happiness and bliss and pain-free existence with God, that's what you get when you sign up for Jesus. That's not it. There's joy, for sure. There is a pain-free existence coming when Jesus comes again. But what Christianity invites us into is a story that makes space for both mountains and valleys. Uh, it prepares us for life to be painfully disappointing at times. And if we don't see that, and if we don't hold on to that, we will think the valley means that our faith failed. We will think that the dry stream means that we're doing this the wrong way. No. Look, it's in your Bible. Please see this. Soul collapse. Light is fading. God feels absent. You've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. That's where he's at. That's what he describes to be true about his life. And his faith is alive all at the same time. Not dead. It has not failed. It's not a picture of a failed life with God. There is very little light in his heart. There is very little lift to his soul, but there are still prayers in his mouth, and that's what it looks like for this to be working. That's what it looks like for it to be going well. He believes this is the kind of thing he can go to God and talk to God about. I'm having a hard time praying God, so I'm going to pray about it. I would rather keep trying to find you, God, than go to streams where I know you're not. What an honest expression of faith. God, I think you're absent, and in telling you that, I'm fighting for the faith to believe you are present enough to care. What would that sound like, friend? What would that sound like? If you're in that place where it's, everything feels like it's maybe dried up around you, and maybe you know how you got there, maybe you don't know how you got there, but you were just able to go to God, would that be really honest, like he's really honest? He says, I'm like the deer in the drought, God. My tears are my food. He doesn't pull punches. He does not expect God to be surprised to hear the things that God already knows are in his heart. What would that sound like? I wonder if it could be really simple. Um, God, something's off between us right now. God, I miss you. Or maybe just to use the language of the psalm, God, my soul has collapsed. Things have dried up. Talk to him about it. Number two. He talks to God, and then he remembers with God. These things I remember, he says in verse 4, 42. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the gathering and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Later, he says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. What he does is he talks to God, and then early on in his conversation with God, he remembers with God when things were different, when his soul wasn't collapsed, when he wasn't mourning, when things were not dry, he remembers. That's so important. Remembrance in the Bible, friends, is all about gratitude, and gratitude in the life of the Christian is all about acknowledging God's presence. Gratitude, remembering is about gratitude, and gratitude is about acknowledging God's presence. How important is that to do in a season where God feels distant, where God seems absent? 
And so he remembers a season where things were full, where life was not drought. He talks to God about being far from him, and he remembers with God when things were different. Now hear me, you only get that kind of remembrance if you give God credit for the good in your life. We tend to do something, friends, that hurts us. When things go well, we look in the mirror. When things go bad, we look to the heavens. When things go well, it's look what I did. When things go bad, it's God, how could you? And that is a really bad take on life. That view is rigged to fail you, my friend. So heed this. If you are in a season of plenty right now, if you're in a season that is full right now, slow down in it and give God credit for it. Give God thanks for it. You will need it if a spiritual drought ever comes. You will need these memories of this season if and when the only water in your life comes from your eyes. Give thanks to God for his goodness. So what the psalmist did, what he could draw on, when things had gone well, the psalmist had looked to the heavens. That's what he did. When things had gone well, he said, God, thank you. Not God, how could you? God, thank you. And he could draw back on those times now. Now that he is in drought, he could draw back on what God had did. Remember with God to sustain him in the present. My mom, she has a, a, a green thumb of sorts. And, and so growing up and then even now at her house, she always has flowers and plants around the yard. It's beautiful. And I remember in high school when it rained sometimes, uh, she would set out a bucket of water or she'd set out a bucket so that the, the bucket would fill with rainwater because rainwater is better for plants than normal water. I don't know. Or maybe rainwater is the normal water. Anyway, uh, and, and so after it filled up, she would take the bucket and she wouldn't use it immediately. She would store it somewhere and she would hold on to it so that when it didn't rain, which is like half the year in Texas, right, she... She, she would have it. If there was a long season of no rain, she could use the water from the past rain to keep the plants alive. And what you see in this prayer from the psalmist, God, it hasn't rained in a, a long time in my life. So I am going to draw on the waters of past rain to sustain me. How do I do that? By remembering, by looking back with gratitude. He accesses from the past what's missing in the present. What he does is he remembers being with the people of God. He says, I remember going with the gathering. Not just going with the gathering. I remember leading the gathering, being at the front line, headed towards the temple. And we went into your presence, God, with songs and shouts. And what he's doing is he's reaching his hand in the waters of a past rain, a past season where God was present and good. And he didn't have the questions then that he has now. And he reaches his hand in there and he finds something to quench his thirst that's different than just his tears. We would do so well to fight our forgetfulness, church. We would do so well to fight our forgetfulness, friends, to, to do the work of remembrance and gratitude, to scatter those buckets of past presence and provision and past goodness all around our life so that we can draw from them often, but especially when the present season is difficult. Because when we remember, it reminds us of the truths about God that were easy to believe then that are hard now. Like one of the things I loved about the worship in July, the throwback worship that Bleeker did, if you weren't here, Bleeker led us the month of July and, and each Sunday we did worship from a different decade, 70s, 80s, 90s. I love the 90s. I love the 90s. What was funny about the 90s was many in our church maybe came to faith after the 90s and so um, didn't know the songs. So half the room is like listening to the songs and they're like, what is this music, you know? And then the other half, who knew all the songs, they're getting saved all over again. Um, that's bad theology, by the way. But there was a lot of that in the 90s, too. So, <laughs> um, 
But the thing I heard over and again, that whole month, the thing I heard in conversation, like the conversations I just had directly or observed were, you know, how those old songs forced in, in a good way a kind of remembrance, right? One of our wiser saints here said to me, things are a lot different now than they were then, but God is the same. And you get those truths by looking back. You have that kind of access to that truth by remembrance. What would that sound like for you? In a season where things feel a bit darker, to remember back to a time when it was not like that, that you might get a glimpse that who God was then, he still is now, that you might draw from waters of, of past rain to sustain you when things are dry. The God who met you then and encouraged you then and saved you then and forgave you then, he is the same now. He has not changed. He talks to God. He remembers with God. And in remembering with God, he gets access to something in the past that's just not as easy to get in the present. And then three, he talks to himself. Throughout the prayer, you hear this language. I don't know if you notice the change, but he talks to God. It's a prayer. He's, he's, it's between him and God. But there's another conversation going on throughout the prayer, and it's one that he has with himself. So three times he says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's not talking to God. He's talking to himself. And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he instructs himself. He commands himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's talking to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. Would you, would you remember this? Maybe even write this down. He stops listening to his heart, and he starts preaching to his heart. He stops listening to his heart, and he starts talking to his heart with the truth of God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. That, that is great advice no matter what kind of season you're in, but especially in dry times, talk to your heart, preach to your heart. Okay, well, how do I know if I'm listening to my heart or talking to my heart? Because I'm on both sides of the conversation. It, it's me, right, on either side of that. And our hearts are a mixed bag. Our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts are complicated, and, and sometimes it's hard to tell. I, I understand that. But when you listen to your heart, it is often one of two things. Listening to your heart because our hearts are deceptive, because our hearts are broken, because we're sinful, it's often one of two things. It's either cynicism or shame. I think it's especially true if you're in a dry place. Cynicism is this. Cynicism attacks the good. Cynicism refuses to hear good news. It says things will always be this way. Nothing I do will change it. Nothing I do will matter. God isn't listening. My prayers are pointless. Maybe it's an angry cynicism that kind of crosses the arms and, and the heart hardens over it, or it's a sad cynicism where you hang your head and eat more tears, but the content of the conversation is fatalistic. It's dark, and it always will be. So maybe what has happened is some of you have heard me these past 30 minutes, and, and you hear, talk to God. He wants to hear you be with him, even if he feels far from you. And the immediate response is, well, that won't work. There's no point. That's cynicism. It's listening to your heart. And I wonder if, if you could fight for the humility to at least consider that you need another voice than your own in your life. Or it's shame. We talked about shame last week, but, but when you're in a season of despair or weariness, shame is especially, especially sinister. Shame has really cruel math. Here's what I mean. Shame divides encouragement and it multiplies criticism. It's cruel math. It works like this. Some comment or influence that should be encouraging to you, you find a way, shame in your heart finds a way to cut it up into little pieces. Divide it up in your heart and in your mind so that the pieces are so little that the encouragement means little. 
Maybe that just happened. It's remember God has stayed the same. He is to you now who he was to you then. God wants to to, to talk to you. He wants to spend time with you. And that has the potential to encourage. I'm not making it up. It's from God's word. It has the potential to, to lift your face just a little bit. But if you're listening to your heart and shame in your heart, it will divide something like that up. It'll cut it up into little pieces. Well, maybe that's true for other people, but it's not true for me. Or maybe what happens is you're struggling and someone in your life knows that you're struggling. And so they come up to you and they say, gosh, you're struggling so well. You're doing such a good job, and shame divides that up in your heart before it even has a chance to lift your face, and you say, they don't know what I think. They wouldn't say that if they saw the parts of me that I see. It divides encouragement so that it has no power to encourage. That's listening to your heart. And then it multiplies criticism. It fills your heart and your mind with critical voices, critical of yourself, critical of God, critical of your circumstances, critical of others. And maybe it's based on some sort of kernel of truth about you, but it multiplies that truth. It exaggerates that truth so that you believe it's the only true thing. So the song in your heart and mind is stuck on all the verses about everything that's wrong. There's no room for good, only words about what's wrong. And that's what your heart will say to you, especially in a season where God feels far from you. It'll be cynical. It'll be filled with shame. It'll divide encouragement. It'll multiply criticism. Tell your heart to be quiet for a bit and preach to it. How you know it's listening to your heart is it sounds like cynicism or shame. How you know you're talking to your heart, it will sound like God. It will sound like something that God would say. He says to himself in the psalm, the kinds of things that God would say, hope in God. I shall again praise him. You get a really honest example of it in the, in the prayer. It's, it's, I'm, so, I'm so glad that it's here because of how honest it is. In verse 7, he says, the waters are breaking over me. We're not doing good. And then in verse 8, he stops listening and he starts preaching. And he says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. He starts talking to his heart with the truth of God. And then in verse 9, you know what happens? I say to God, why have you forgotten me? He's back to that bad place, right? And, and you could easily read it and say, he sounds like he can't make up his mind. He sounds like he's contradicting himself. No, no. He sounds like someone in the depths of spiritual valley who is both honest with God about his pain and honest with himself that all he has is God. And instead of being ruled by his heart, he interrupts the dialogue with the truth of God. No, 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 the Lord commands his steadfast love. His song is with me. He says what's true, even if it doesn't feel true. The Lord commands his loving kindness. During the day when I'm not eating, he commands his love for me. During the night when I'm not sleeping, he sings over me. He interrupts that dialogue. He silences his heart, stops listening to it, starts preaching to it. And I just wonder, what would that sound like for you? To silence the cynicism, silence the shame, to preach to your heart, not just listen, but to talk back with God's truth. You know, God, I'm, I'm downcast right now. God, you seem far from me right now, but your word tells me that nothing can separate me from your love, not even this dry ground, not even this difficult season. What would you do something? Maybe find the verse in the Bible that you most wish you could believe with your whole heart. Memorize that verse and then make that verse the refrain you speak to your heart over and over and over again. What would that sound like? And that leads to the last part. The last thing he does is he hopes in God. In 43, verses 3 and 4, he says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. 
And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. This is towards the end of the prayer. He talks to God. He remembers with God. He talks to himself. And now he hopes in God. Did you hear the substance of the hope? If you were to just put it in a few words, here's what he says. It won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. Remember what it means to mourn is the light is fading. It's growing darker. And so he hopes in God and he asks for something. He says, God, send out your light. You lead me. Then I will go to the altar. I will rejoice again. I will praise you again. And I love how honest it is. He doesn't pretend like there was a quick fix. He doesn't pretend like he was just a few moments in prayer away from everything getting better. It's present tense. All of his hope is present tense. He doesn't say, oh, look, gosh, the joy is all back. He doesn't say, oh, God, the waters are flowing again. No, it's just this simple confidence, this honest hope that it will not be like this forever. One day I'll lead the gathering again. One day I'll worship again. One day it won't be like this anymore. What would that sound like for you to hope in God like that? In a season of soul collapse, in a season where everything's dried up, what would it sound like? Can I give you the answer for this one? We have something that the psalmist did not. We are on this side of Jesus' life and work and reign. And that means we have the hope of his resurrection and his return. And I need you, we together need to remember something that Jesus entered into this place of despair. Jesus entered into this place of mourning, into this place of drought, so that we could be rescued from it, and so that we could know in it that it's not the story over our life. We know from the Gospels that Jesus made seven statements on the cross. Number four was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right after that, number five, he says, I thirst, like a deer, like someone looking at the ground that has dried up underneath me. It means more than just his physical state. He went to where he was used to finding the Father, and he was not there. He was thirsty for God, and, and he allowed his soul to collapse, and then the light went out on his life because he loves you. Because he loves you. So that you may be right with God. In the season of darkness, the season of drought may be the chapter that you're in right now, but it's not the end of the story. It will not be like this forever because Jesus died and rose and one day will return. You can have confidence that you will again praise him. You will again be filled with joy where your story is headed, Christian, is joy-filled, pain-free, face-to-face eternity with King Jesus forever and ever. You have a future, and God tells you about it. In Revelation 21, he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give water without cost and the spring of the water of life forever and ever. It will not be like this forever. You will again praise God. Hope in God. Hope in God. Say that to God in prayer. Jesus, I know where this is all going. I don't know tomorrow, but I know forever. God wants to talk to you about the things that are hard to talk to God about. And that includes those seasons of life that are so painful where it feels or seems that God is far from you. Let's practice that together. God, we love you. God, we need you. 
God, for those of us in the room, maybe feel your absence, feel, God, a distance from you. I pray, God, first for the the faith, the confidence to believe. Lord, that there is a truth about you. That there would be the humility maybe in our lives to invite your word to be the thing that we submit our experience underneath, Lord. You know, it's true because of you, Jesus, ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, advocating for us, interceding, is that while it is common to feel like you're far from us, while we can often enter into seasons, prolonged seasons, where it seems that you're absent, it's never true. It's never true. You, Jesus, you promised, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So part of what all of this is, God, us coming to you and saying, I want to talk to you, God. I want to remember with you. I want to preach to my heart, and I want to hope in you, God, is, is a way to just say, I'm not, I'm not going to be the authoritative voice over my life that I'm going to fight for the faith that believes that things are true even when they don't feel true. Would you help us, God?